speak tonight about another one of the paramis, one of these forces of purification in our heart that uh, prepares the heart for uh, awakening to the truth. Because as we know, we have a lot of resistance, a lot of conditioning, a lot of confusion about what the truth is. And so it takes a well-developed mind to be able to see the truth and to respond rather than react. So you'll remember that the Bodhisattva was born into a wealthy family, uh, maybe a royal family even, said that for the first 29 years of his life, he lived a life of luxury and indulgence. And uh, he knew no want, uh, and he just was able to entertain himself with sensual delights. This is the myth. But it was probably something like the way we live. And um, then his karmic Aspiration had him leave the protection of his conditioning and to undertake the spiritual practices of his day, which were very severe and austere. And so for six years, he was engaged in the most torturous, actually, uh, physical uh, disciplines, spiritual practices. And he was looking for this uh, freedom, freedom from suffering, freedom from all suffering. And at some point he realized that he had tortured himself so harshly with his uh, practices that he was uh, too weak to, to go on and that uh, he wasn't free. Yeah. And at that time he had a um, memory come to mind of when he was a young child watching his father, the king, ritually plow the earth for a, uh, a, bounty, uh, a, a bounteous harvest. And he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree and he was just, he was attentive but relaxed, tranquil and alert, and he spontaneously entered an exalted state of mind, what we would probably call jhana, or some kind of absorption. And he remembered this as he was struggling after six years of torture, ascetic practices, and he remembered how he felt, tranquil and alert, calm, pleasant, peaceful, and that's what led his mind to this exalted state. So he had this insight that maybe, maybe there was something about that that was indicative of the path to awakening, the end of suffering. But he had this conditioning from his spiritual practices that to, to be comfortable, to even enjoy anything was dangerous and you, you, it would prevent you from realizing your spiritual goal. And so he checked his own mind and he said, now, here I am, young man, young boy, tranquil and alert, calm, no harmful thoughts in his mind, no evil intention in his mind, spontaneously entering this exalted state and finding it very pleasant. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that pleasantness? And he determined that there was nothing evil or unwholesome about that. But that was contrary to his religious conditioning, spiritual training. And it's 
that all the training at the time was would not agree to that. And so he left not only the protection of his family, cultural conditioning, uh, the safety and security of that, but he also left the safety and security of his, well, contemporary spiritual conditioning. Really out on a limb, charting uncharted waters, if you will, where, well, no one had ever gone before. He didn't get the teachings of the Buddha from a Buddha. We do. We do. And through his own efforts, through his own insight, he then eventually woke to the truth, as we've spoken about them, Four Noble Truths. Not that he invented them, but he was able to experience and realize and understand them. And he would characterize his understanding of the path to this realization and this awakening as the middle path. The middle path that avoids the extremes of sensual indulgence and uh, sensual denial, if you will, or ascetic denial. And so this middle path, this middle way of a path of practice is the epitome and it's a practice of equanimity, the balanced mind, the mind that's not falling into extremes on either end of the spectrum. But you can see that the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, as the Bodhisattva, had to traverse to the extremes of both ends of the spectrum before he understood what the middle was. Our practice looks a lot like that. We will probably explore a lot of, you know, far ends of the spectrum before we find the middle path. Or, I should say, practice is really a continual refinement of understanding what the middle path is for you. And one way of understanding that is, you know, we hear these teachings of uh, the Buddha and this path of awakening we're on, and sometimes we get this, this sense of just how vast the transformation can be and how profound it is and how arduous it is in the totality of it. And yet, in the moment-to-moment of it, it's very ordinary. It's so mundane. It's just feeling the breath, taking a step, hearing the sound and knowing that you're hearing. And yet, these ordinary, mundane experiences are the stepping stones of profound, vast heart. So I mentioned earlier about this first Burmese monk that I saw, Tongkulu Sayadaw, when he came to um, Meditation Center in Massachusetts, and I had just started my Dhamma practice, and uh, I was told that he was coming and that he'd lived in a cave for 16 years and came out for a year, then he went back into the cave for another 17 years. What I failed to tell you previously <coughs> is that at the time that he was coming to see us, he hadn't laid down in 50 years, and he hadn't slept in 35. This is out of our realm, you know. I mean, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, don't, we don't even have to think about that. We don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We just know it's different. <laughs> so when I heard this, you know, I, I had been doing retreats at the meditation center, and my idea of the middle path was, you know, here. And when I heard of his practice of the middle path, it shifted my idea of the middle in his direction substantially. It's like, how do you hear that and not adjust your own idea of the middle path? But that's just an idea. And so each one of us has to under, you know, keep taking our own steps 
but be willing to go outside of our comfort zone in order to really find where the middle is. Because we don't know. We just have an idea. And until we take the journey, we're not going to know the shape of the road or the path. So, equanimity parami is a parami. It's one of the perfections. It's one of the uh, purifications of the mind. And I want to speak about the equanimity parami in the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path. Sila, as was just spoken about, Shelley, is really a balanced way of life. Samadhi is really the divine abiding of equanimity. And Panya, or wisdom, is the equanimity towards all experiences. So, Sila is really a balanced way of life. And what do I mean by that? There are these eight worldly dharmas, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, gain and loss. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. And while we prefer the pleasant end, the agreeable end, we all also experience the less agreeable experience, the loss, the pain, the disrepute, the blame. And so as we walk this path of awakening, we have to be prepared. We can expect, in fact, we've already all experienced a lot of both, you know, both ends of the spectrum. And neither one is wrong, and neither one is right. They just are what they are. And when they arise, it's our mind, it's our heart's relationship to them that determines whether it is a moment of awakening to the truth or a moment of struggle, denial, fear of, you know, judgment of, resistance to the way things are. Every moment. If we prefer praise to blame, we're going to suffer. Pride when we get praised, you know, chagrin when we get blamed. At least chagrin. And both of those are forms of suffering. And so too with the rest of it. So when we feel, as we talk about it now, when we feel entitled, or even don't even know that we feel entitled, but act entitled to our, well, our view of the world, from our cultural, our family, our class, our ethnicity, our gender preference, view, that's not the middle path. And when we claim and, and feel victimized by, you know, those experiences that are unwelcome, that also is not the middle path. And yet we are all going to experience times of feeling entitled to and victimized by. So how can we experience these experiences and include them as equally valuable experiences for awakening? That's the challenge. That's where equanimity comes in. How can I experience, not to reify any of them as the best, or better, every experience is an equal opportunity for awakening. You know, life is a contact sport. Maybe it's not even a sport. Life is full of contact. Contact with people, ideas, conditions, pleasant, unpleasant. And the ordinary perspective, our ordinary conditioned perspective on this contact is that it's competitive, it's harsh, it's brutal, it's adversarial. But from a dharmic perspective, it's not. You don't need to judge it. We can just see this is the way it is. It's not good nor bad. It just is. And... From that perspective, learning how to be open to and aware of all experience is really the, um, the strategy 
Again, as Don Juan acknowledged to Carlos Castaneda, the ordinary person views life's experiences as either blessings or curses. But the man and woman who are spiritual warriors see all of life's experiences as opportunities for growth, strength, stability, and knowledge. All of life's experiences. In this is, this requires, you know, finding a balance between the wonder of being and the terror of being. Several years ago now, uh, just like we came here a week ago, Friday night, to begin a retreat. Well, years ago, I was with another group in another location, arrived Friday night for a retreat. Friday night we started, all day Saturday we had, well, you know what the first day of retreat's like. Sunday, had the full day, second day of retreat. Monday morning, six o'clock. The neighbor on the land just behind the meditation hall, which is about from here to the parking lot, 50 yards, decided that he was going to have his land clear cut. And this is not with chainsaws, this is with machines. Big machines. A couple of guys in big machines that just kind of started up at six o'clock. You know, kind of come up to a tree, grab the tree at about 20 feet high, snip it off at the bottom, turn it on its side, send it through a chipper, and chip it, and blow the chips into a truck. And that's the way it went from six to three every day of the retreat. Every day of the retreat. Now, there was one woman attending the retreat who had just gotten out of jail for chaining herself to an old growth redwood so that it wouldn't get cut down. There was a land use lawyer sitting in the front row who spent the whole first morning writing up a request for a cease and desist order. And that was just the beginning. So what do you do in a situation like that? Your one retreat of the year, and you end up, you know, neighbor, you know, babysitting a clear cut. Well, we reacted. We expressed ourselves. We um, resolved to do what we could. Then we changed the time of the Dharma talk to when they weren't doing that. We started earlier and took the middle part of the day and moved the whole hall to another part of the property. Nobody left. Everybody stayed for the full retreat. And almost universally they all said it was the best retreat they ever had. They didn't have a choice. It wasn't like we were going to negotiate with those guys. And they weren't the enemy. We went and talked to them. They're doing a job, and the landowner talked to him too. You know, it was time to do it, and you know that was his you know, income. So how do we accommodate that with our idea about you know spiritual retreat, spiritual practice? Well, you really have to kind of open your mind and say, well, what what is it we're trying to do here? We're trying to find a way to be at ease with all conditions. And that's what we did. And it was the most best retreat they ever had. Not pleasant, though. So we should not mistake ease or pleasantness or having our expectations met as, you know, the path, the exclusive path. It isn't that at all. The middle path is developing this attitude that can accept, modulate, moderate, you know, the fear and the dread and the despair we have at having to deal with the unpleasant. And can also moderate the expectation, the anticipation, the excitement, the indulgence that we have of the pleasant experiences. Either one of them is just being intoxicated. 
So this middle middle path lifestyle that we lead, you know, really leads us to be less judgmental, more in harmony within ourselves and with others, courageous in forbearing patiently what is unwanted, in learning how to let go of dramatizing ordinary natural events of life. All of life is a natural process. It's nature unfolding. Causes and conditions make it this way. It's not like our decision that it's right or wrong or pleasant or not pleasant or what I want or not want. It doesn't change the fact that things happen due to causes and conditions. They unfold according to the laws of nature. Can we bring our understanding into alignment with the laws of nature? Because if we don't, and we're rubbing up against, it's going to create a lot of friction with reality. And friction burns. So this is our, this is our challenge. Can we let go of our entitlement and our victimization and see that conditions just are the way they are? And we can respond to them. We can react to them, we can understand them, we can be confused or deluded by them, but that's our practice, is to try to come out of the reactivity and the confusion and to be, uh, to understand and to be able to respond. <coughs> the mind has that much capacity. The heart is as big as you can let it be. As John Sumato said, the mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies. Rain clouds or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is the space of equanimity. Without reactivity, but able to respond. So that's one, one way of understanding the development of equanimity, one area of our life, equanimity. The second area is the practice of equanimity as a divine abiding, you know, along with metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and skupeka, a divine abiding. And it is the development of equanimity through calming the mind, which leads one to what's called the fourth absorption, or fourth jhana. And it's aroused, or we, we aim the mind towards a reflection on the law of karma, because it is the proximate cause for the arising of equanimity is to reflect on the law of karma. And the phrase is Mawigachantu Kamasaka. And this means that, to paraphrase in so many words, that all beings have karma as their true property. All beings are heirs of their karma. Karma being your intentional actions, thinking, speaking, and behaviorally. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. All beings have their own journey. Things are just as they are. This moment is just as it is. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your own actions more than on my wishes for you. When we reflect in this way, it is going to challenge some of our conditioned beliefs and assumptions about ourselves, about our conditions, about others' selves, and others' conditions. Because we are heir to our karma. This is not payback. You know, it's a kind of a mistaken thing that, oh, I'm being punished for something I did uh, wrong if I feel anything unpleasant. It's not, you know. As I mentioned earlier, if you throw a ball in the air and forget that you threw it, and I'm walking around at the same spot when it comes down, you might blame someone for throwing that ball to hit you. 
But it's the law of gravity that's doing the work. There's nobody to blame. So, sometimes from our ordinary conditioned perspective, we could say life's unfair. I had that feeling one time, trying to work with the local water department to get a water meter for our property. Had arranged a meeting with some the deputy director of the water department and some engineers to try to make some adjustments to the design of a project we were completing for them. And I wanted to make some see if they would agree to some adjustments so that the cost of the project would come down to be more affordable. So I presented my first idea. You know, can we reduce the size of the water tank from ten thousand gallons to one thousand gallons? And after a hushed discussion looking through the regulations book, uh, a deputy director announced, no, not going to be able to do that. Page 37, section 14, paragraph 3, sentence number 2, word number 1, 10,000 gallons. Okay, how about uh, changing the size of the outlet pipe? The inlet pipe is 6 inches in diameter, the outlet pipe is 8 inches in diameter. That didn't seem to make sense to me. So I asked him about that, if we could reduce the size of the pipe. Again, looking through the manual of statistics and standards, no. The answer came back, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. And so it went through a few more on the list, whereupon the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to tell you, life's unfair. <laughs> <coughs> I believed that for a split second, and in that second, my mind was filled with all the unskillful <laughs> impulses I could possibly manage. You know, rage and indignation and just disbelief, and you, I had, my mind was filled with expletives. And it just scrolled around for a while. Luckily, I'd already had 30 years of meditation practice, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> had my Dharma duct tape on my mouth. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't too long. I mean, it seemed like it was hours. It was probably 15 seconds. I arrived at the understanding that this is the way it is. And the corollary of that is, uh, this is, this can be dealt with. That's what practice does for us. You know, I could have put my foot in my mouth or my fist in somebody else's and, <laughs> and that would have been the end of that. But how do we, how do we, when we get that feedback, life's unfair. Can't along with that, deal with it. Yeah. Understanding the law of cause and effect. When we understand the law of cause and effect, it makes no sense to blame impersonal conditions for our condition. We can see, we can know, we can understand. We can, we can see the conditioning, all the conditions that we don't control and notice that so, so does no one else that makes this, this moment come into being. And when we understand that, we recognize the, the role that we each have in our futures. We are not the architects, but we're the co-architects of our future. We have to work with the materials at hand, but we make choices of how to use them. So when we develop this divine abiding of equanimity, of non-reactivity, but clearer seeing, the fire enemy, that which is the opposite of this equanimity, is reactivity. Of course, you know, if we're practicing non-reactivity or equanimity, then reactivity is going to be the opposite, other end of the spectrum. And reactivity is of two kinds, attachment and aversion, to the middle way, right? So when we, when we attached to pleasant experience, physical or mental, we suffer. 
when we can recognize pleasure with dispassion, we're balanced. Or when we are averse to unpleasant physical and mental experience, like life's unfair. But equanimity would have us recognize the pain of unpleasantness with compassion. So, this is the fire enemy. But what sometimes masquerades as equanimity is I don't careism, passivity, callousness, unintelligent indifference. So we know when we practice equanimity, we're actually going to be going again against the stream of our conditioning. Because so much of our conditioning is very partisan, it's blindly partisan, blindly entitled, blindly victimized, blindly. We don't know. We don't we don't see our conditioning. And so it takes this extraordinary continuity of awareness to wake up to the way things are. So I was in Burma practicing. I'd been there about in the third year. And the dictator that had been ruling the country for, I think, 30 years, uh, first he did something really interesting. He uh, devalued all, all the paper currency to zero. Anything that had a, you know, a 10, a 100, or a 1,000, or 10,000, or whatever, they were useless. And he came out with a new denomination. Everything was in nines. Nine, ninety, <coughs> ninety, nine hundred. It was a disaster. So, but basically, everybody got dispossessed of their possession, of their, of their finances. Well, he stepped down <coughs> shortly after that because the country was in turmoil. And, well, when a 30-year dictatorship comes to an end, people get happy. You know, and the Burmese people were really happy. And they were like, wow, great, now we're going to get a chance to get some, something different and hopefully we can get the vote. And so the whole country went on strike for about six weeks while they just marched in front of the American embassy every day, hundreds of thousands, just letting their aspiration and desires be known to the world. And after six weeks, there was some incident where... A couple of military guys got uh, humiliated by a crowd, and that was enough provocation for the military to take over. So one night we're in the monastery, you know, it's about 10 o'clock at night, just doing our practice, and we start hearing all these firecrackers going, and you know, little bomb firecrackers, and firecrackers, and things like that. And then as we listened a little closer, we realized that's not firecrackers, that's not cherry bombs. That's machine guns and otherwise. And so the military was taking over that night, all across the country. And they were driving around with this loudspeaker saying, okay, everybody stay inside. If you see groups of three or more anywhere, you'll be shot on sight, no questions asked. And that was the end of marching in front of the American embassy. And unbeknownst to us, I was in the monastery, I wasn't doing that, I saw it. I saw people. But uh, all the leaders of all the marches were photographed. And they all disappeared. Whole generation of civic and political leaders disappeared. And so the, that military put Aung San Suu in under house arrest for 20 years. That was the end of that aspiration. Well, I was in the monastery. They closed the monastery. Everybody had to leave. All the foreigners had to leave. And uh, I was... Even the Burmese people had to leave. You know, other than the monks that ran the place. And uh, I wanted to stay. So, at the time, when it first happened, I was practicing Vipassana. But Vipassana, as you know, brings you close to Dukkha. And... Uh, jhana practice or concentration practice brings you close to sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha, which is pleasantness and comfort. So I stopped doing vipassana because it was too intense, being open to all the suffering and pain that was going on around. 
just outside the walls. So I started doing um, loving-kindness practice, loving-kindness and equanimity. And after a couple of weeks of doing loving-kindness practice, I went, to, you know, I was reporting to Sadhu Pandita, and I went in one day and he said, uh, are you practicing metta for the generals that took over the country? And I was indignant. Are you kidding? I'm not going to... Why should I send metta to them? And he said, it is out of their own ignorance that they think what they're doing is going to make them happy. And if they were really happy, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. So if you practice metta for them, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering, then maybe they will. Well, it took me a while to figure out how to have loving-kindness for the person without condoning their action. But you can. And thereafter, I, you know, it took a while, but I figured out how to see the ignorant, the ignorant mind that was causing the harm and the danger and to have some compassion for the, you know, the person whose mind was so tormented. So, it was necessary to practice equanimity for that, for the next year when the whole country was under martial law and when we would go out on alms around the uh, you could see where there had been skirmishes during the evening or the night before and burned cars and buildings and there were roadblocks everywhere on a, a three mile uh, circuit around the neighborhood we must have had to go through 20 different roadblocks some by the military, some by the population the populace and it was really interesting because the monks were the only people out on the streets you know, at night there were skirmishes of somebody and uh, then in the morning, the monks, just just like during times of peace, would put on their robes, take their bowls, go to the monastery, and walk through this very tense martial law neighborhood. It was really powerful to see how people would come out and serve the monks. And in some ways, the monks, just doing their daily thing, Going for going for harms in the neighborhood was the source of stability in people's lives at that time, because everything else was totally, you know, no clarity what's going to happen next. And yet the monks were just going their homes around, and they were they were they were fearless, or we were fearless, or I mean, what were we going to do? We had to eat, so we would go, and it was a source of. Well, a source of safety, a symbol of stability, a symbol of something uh, other than what was going on, you know, with the military. So I think it's really important to recognize the power of not only loving kindness, but equanimity and having the steadiness of mind to face and to walk through dangerous places. Whether it's politically dangerous or emotionally dangerous, but to, but to have the courage in your heart through the non-reactivity of equanimity to be able to do that. So when you practice, you know, this kind of samadhi, equanimity samadhi, uh, the mind gets very light. Actually, all the plasticity factors of the mind accompany these uh, deep, deeply concentrated states. You know, the mind is really tranquil, it's very light and flexible, pliable, it's gentle, it's, it's easily strong and has enduring stamina, as well as uh, it's very straightforward. It just sees things as they are, honest, not, unable to deceive itself. But we are unable to deceive ourselves. And these qualities come with the mind that is really collected and non-reactive. We are blinded by our reactivity, which weakens the mind. So we have the, you know, the sila as a practice of equanimity, we have samadhi or collectedness of mind as a practice of equanimity, and we have panya, wisdom, also as a practice of equanimity. 
And the panya, the practice of equanimity that we're doing here is, of course, practicing awareness, mindfulness, for the development of insight. And there's constant need for equanimity. Even as we very just begin the practice, we have to have right view, right attitude, one without ex- expectation, without demands, but being willing to be there and just to see things as they are. So even to begin, we just have to remember to, to just recognize the present moment's experience. We're not trying to make something of it, we're not trying to get rid of it, we're not trying to explain it, all of which would be some kind of manipulation and kind of moving it around. Instead it's just, can we have the strength of mind to just see this is the way it is. So even as we begin the practice of mindfulness, awareness, it relies on equanimity. And then, of course, as we experience pleasant and unpleasant physical, pleasant and unpleasant mental, pleasant and unpleasant emotional experiences, which we do, it takes time, but eventually we learn how to have a more balanced mind in relationship to all of those. Not easy, is it? You know, pain in the body is not easy to be at ease with. Pain in the heart is no easier either. But when we work towards recognizing without reactivity, you know, we strengthen affective equanimity. It's not you who removes the torment, remember? Wisdom does that job. So it's really, can we steady the mind to observe, to attend, to be with, to learn from, and let that understanding balance the mind. Then we have these insights that that begin to arise after both familiarity with practice. And we begin to see dukkha. I mean, we begin to understand dukkha. And dukkha is just pointing to, as I've acknowledged, pain, the inevitability, the universality, the ubiquity of pain in the body and the mind, and the insecurity, the instability, the vulnerability, the oppressive, depressive nature of experience. When we are open to these understandings, we react. We, do, we don't want to know this. We don't want to learn this. And so that also takes a lot of Uh, repetitions to see, to understand, to recognize this is the way it is. Nobody's forcing it on you. This this is the way it is. And as you see that over and over and over again, eventually we come to a balanced understanding. Oh, this is the way it is. That doesn't mean that we don't respond to suffering. We don't respond to insecurity. We don't respond to oppression. We do. But first we have to see, this is the way it is. And if we're in denial, if we're in avoidance, if we're in aversion to the way it is, we're not going to see that. We're not going to have the strength of mind, the strength of an equanimous mind, to see things as they really are. So, developing the you know, equanimity towards these three characteristics is awfully personal. Because we see in our own life how, you know, in the past we've done things that have been unskillful, dukkha, things have changed, we weren't in control, and we have to somehow understand these three characteristics in our past history, in our present experience, and as we anticipate the future. It's not like my practice is going to get so good, there's going to be no dukkha. That's I hope you're not holding on to that. We do, don't we? You know, we think, if I practice just right, there's not going to be any dukkha. Remember the first noble truth? All experience has the characteristic of dukkha. So what is it that we're doing? We're learning not just to experience dukkha with awareness, but to understand the nature of dukkha, the nature of impermanence, the nature of change, inevitable and incessant change. And initially, you know, it's all with, you know, every object, every moment. We see it has stupid characteristic, it has this Nietzsche characteristic, it's conditioned. We can't control it. This also takes 
some steadiness of seeing things as they are, understanding things as they are. And then, you know, because of some stability, some equanimity, some clarity, some affective equanimity, we're not caught in reaction so much, the spiritual goodies arise. Calmness, clarity, exuberant faith, effortless energy, joy, ecstasy, bliss, clarity. When these come with this heightened uh, power of mind, it's just like mainlining the divine. Who couldn't get, well, seduced and attracted and attached to that? We do. We do. We all get attached to it. As soon as we have good practice, you know, the experiences of good practice are spiritual goodies. Things we've been looking for. Things we've been hoping for. Hoping that this is it. It isn't, but we think it is. And for as long as we think, this is it. Now I've got it. No, you haven't. <laughs> this is just a scenic turnout on the route. And to learn how to experience these spiritual goodies and not be attached to them, but to have more of an equanimous view of them, just another experience being known. It's, hey, it's just bliss. It's, it's just ecstasy. It's just clarity being known. It's just effortless energy being known. If it's anything more than just being known, there's some version, well, no version, there's a lot of attachment. And so you can see how challenging it's going to be to grow and strengthen your equanimity when the spiritual goodies arise. But this is the direction we're going. Okay? Up to this point, we've been just seeing moment-to-moment experiences and trying to establish awareness and non-reactivity. But there's something that happens here. Once we kind of have a handle, so to speak, or we kind of understand, oh yeah, these spiritual goodies, that's not the goal. Balance of mind is the goal. Okay. Then an interesting thing happens. We start to see that not only are our experience, moment-to-moment experiences impermanent, but the knowing, which some of you call the knower, is also momentarily impermanent. This is really... Shakes our, shakes our cage. When we see that the one that we thought was being aware and being mindful is as impermanent as every other experience we've seen. Our sense of self is just a sense of self. It's just one dharma knowing another dharma. It's not anybody there. Well, this is not our preferred understanding. We think we're doing this practice and we're doing it well now. Scripture goodies and all. But we see, no, we're not. We're not doing it at all. It's just one Dharma knowing another Dharma. Awareness knowing this moment. So you can see that there's some challenges to, and the way we develop equanimity is to see all of these things, all of these experiences that we are attached to but don't yet know it. And then when we let go, then we see how challenging it is to develop equanimity. But this is, this is the path of insight. This is what we're doing here. Up to this point, we've seen dukkha, we've seen anicca, we've seen anatta, we've seen these three characteristics, but we haven't really understood them. There's a whole phase of practice that comes next called the dukkhanyanas, knowledge of dukkha. Remember I said the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated. Well, the investigation is working and now you're going to get to see what it really is. And it leads to a lot of despair, depression, uh, disillusionment, disenchantment. Hard to keep practicing in the face of that. And yet, these two are just another experience being known. That's a big jump in equanimity. To begin to see that, you know, dukkha's not so bad. It's bad. You know, it's painful. It's insecure. 
But the understanding of dukkha, when we understand and accept without resistance the truth of dukkha, we stop suffering. It takes a lot of equanimity. But this is the direction we're going. We can see that at every step of the practice, at every step of uh, the development of our practice, we're going to be faced with more pleasant, unpleasant, unexpected, unknown experiences to discover, uncover, discover, and to find a balanced relationship with. And for as many moments of experience as it takes, it will be shown to us again and again and again and again and again and again until we can acknowledge yeah, another experience being known. And the equanimity gets stronger and stronger. And this is important because equanimity is the, the base from which you know, the mind launches into the unconditioned. And without this strength of equanimity, the unconditioned is not available, not accessible. And the unconditioned is the access to nibbana, it's to spiritual awakening, if you will, it's to the uprooting of some of these torments from the mind. Equanimity is the goal, it's the near goal of our practice to find that place of balance over and over again with whatever comes up, so that we can understand this is the way things are. Because when we're caught in attraction, attachment, or aversion, disappointment, whatever, then we're not seeing things as they are. These winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? Attributed to Kuan Yin. In the verses on the in the verses on the faith mind, it is said the great way, the middle path. The great way is not difficult for those not attached to their preferences. When neither love nor hate arises, all is clear and undisguised. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Pointing to this balance, this place of balance, brought to perfection. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike, that's the disease of the mind. And the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.